Hey guys, welcome back to the Dad Tired Podcast. And first of all, just please forgive my terrible sounding voice here. Uh, I caught some kind of bug this week, plus uh, I was teaching this weekend, so I was just like shouting at everybody and screaming. And <laughs> uh, in addition to being sick, I just completely lost my voice. So thankfully for you, uh, Chris is going to be hosting today's podcast, and it's so, so helpful. Um, and you won't have to listen to my terrible voice. <laughs> For the next 20 minutes. Anyway, uh, super excited for us to jump into today's episode. I do want to give you a couple of things before we do that. First of all, if you are not signed up for our Dad Tired annual retreat, I would love for you guys to be part of that. Um, it is going to be an incredible time. This is our third year in a row doing it. The first year we had 100 guys, last year we had 200. We're anticipating three to 400 guys this year. Um, so if you haven't signed up for that, make sure you do that before our early bird pricing ends. Um, we'll have to increase the increase the price uh, as we get closer to the date. If you go to dadtire.com, you can click the annual retreat tab and get information on that and also sign up for that. We're also looking for guys uh, or businesses to sponsor that retreat. We just want to make this, uh, we know that dads very rarely get a chance to break away and to just spend some time getting poured into. And so we just want to make it the most valuable time for them. We really want to bless the guys that come here and um, the more means that we have to be able to bless them, to gift them things, to make sure that their experience is kind of over the top. We just really want to love on the guys, make it the most comfortable um, um, and engaging time where it just really blesses them. Um, so we're looking for businesses to help us do that. If you can sponsor, or you want to sponsor, it's all tax write-off for you as a business. Or if you want to do this individually, you can do that as well. You can just reach out to us, hello at dadtired.com, and we can talk to you about what a sponsorship would look like. And we'd love to get your business in front of our guys um, if that's something you're interested in as well. Before we jump into today's episode, I do want to thank my friends over at True Play for sponsoring it. Uh, if you're like me, you want your kids to stay safe online while having a blast with the games that they play. That's why I'm really excited to tell you guys about True Play Games. True Play is a brand new faith-based app that's designed specifically for kids. It features animated shorts, digital comic books, and a variety of all kinds of games all within one app that's all created to help your kids experience God's truth in a really fun and engaging way. With True Play, your kids can immerse themselves in a world full of safe and original content that is interwoven with biblical lessons. Very hard to find games that aren't cheesy and also biblical. True Play does that really, really well. The best part is there are no ads, there are no chat rooms, there are no in-app purchases. It's a worry-free environment where your kids can learn and play without any distractions. If you want to learn more, you can go to trueplaygames.com. That's T-R-U-P-L-A-Y games.com. And you can learn more about how True Play is helping children grow in their faith while they play. Plus, as a special offer for you, the Dad Tired listeners, the first 50 people who use the discount code Dad Tired, one word, at checkout, you'll receive 25% off your purchase. So you need to act fast to redeem that discount before it's too late and all those 50 spots are taken. Again, that's trueplay.com or trueplaygames.com, T R U P L A Y Games. Dot com. Don't miss out on this opportunity to bring faith-filled fun into your child's life with True Play Games. So what do you do when you're at the park and a kid pushes your kid down? Or what do you do when your kid's in high school and they get an unfair sentence of detention? What do you do when your kid is in elementary school football and a ref makes a horrible call or not just a uh, some kind of capricious call that that 
it didn't go your way, but maybe even you could make a really good case that they were trying to make your team lose. I think this is one of the few areas where, as parents, people can get more divided. I just found this out um, working with my life group. I, I work at a church in San Diego, California as a pastor, and we just put up a new like a playscape in front of the um, sanctuary so kids can come and crawl and play and do that. And there's like a hill in the middle, like a little hill slide. So you can climb. It, I mean, in the middle of service, it looks like an anthill, just kids climbing up everywhere. And so without fail, you start getting kids who are sliding down and bumping into other kids. And, and, and so it's just so funny to watch the semicircle of parents watching all this take place and all the different uh, kind of categories of parent. You've got like your hyper involved, right? The um, and some of us are those kind of parents. They you, you kind of bubble wrap your kid. You don't want them to experience any sort of pain or any kind of anguish, and so you just kind of bubble wrap them in it. Um, then you've got like the uh, you might not be physically concerned with what they're doing, but you want to make sure that they're not offending anyone or that they themselves aren't being offensive or that anyone's calling them a, a name. So you, you stay with an earshot to hear even what the kids are saying. And, you know, some of them are they just find themselves like one of the kids. You know, I found myself just sitting on top of the hill slide with all these kids everywhere. And um, I just think the, the world of kids is just so interesting to me, like what they talk about and their instant ability to make friendships and their lack of social filter. And, you know, they've got no problem telling you like, you've got an old face. And you're like, well, that was super rude. But then the great thing about a hill slide is you can just, you know, push them off and um, all is fair in love and war and hill slides. So anyway, but it's a, it's a social experiment, right? It's, it's, I think it's like why adults watch The Bachelor is you just watch what happens when someone is convinced that they're in love with three different people and then 40 women all think they're in love with the same guy. It's, it's a social experiment. So such, a, such as it is with any playground. It's, it's a social experiment in the realm of parenting. And one of the things that I've asked myself lately and, and that I've been navigating a lot is what do you do in the instances in life when your kid experiences injustice? I think there's probably a few different categories. I named some of them, but maybe some of the key ones that I've already experienced with my kids. I've got five, five kids. The oldest is um, nine. The youngest is two. And um, so you already kind of walk through some of these things. I'm thinking about specifically either authority figures in their life or uh, friends, neighbors, where they experience what you would consider to be like just some kind of gross injustice, um, where you can't really make an argument that um, you can see it the other person's way or that it makes sense, but just you just kind of sit with your jaw dropped, like, how, how was that fair? How did that happen? I, I remember um, in my house growing up, one time I was... Um, I went to school and I was walking to school and there was like a crosswalk and there was a guy on the other side of the crosswalk. He was like the crossing guard. They had just started having a guy be like a cross guard at my high school. And for three years, this was my senior year, for three years, I walked to school every day and I crossed and I did it like an adult would, you know, you look both ways. There's a little uh, signal. So everyone's supposed to stop and you wait until they stop and you cross and you're, everything's kosher. You're good to go. Everything. I had gone home from after school. I didn't have a seventh period. And then I came back for uh, theater practice or whatever I was coming back for. I should have said basketball rather than theater, but it's too late. And, um, coming back for basketball practice and, um, the crossing guard, uh, I was halfway across and forgot that we had a crossing guard. So I'm in the middle of the street and he's like, I did not give you the signal to cross. And I, I'm some, now I'm standing in the middle of traffic and cars are like honking and getting mad. And I'm like, 
uh, doing the, do you want me to come across? Do you want me to go back? Do you, I, it, remember those guys from this song, like, what is love, baby, don't hurt, like me, you, you, me. That's how it felt in the middle of the street. Like, do I come there? Do I go back? Do I do whatever? And um, so he's like, what are you doing? Why are you in the middle of the street? And I was like, well, you, you haven't signaled me across. And he's all, oh, oh, wise guy. So we finally, I go across to him and he's like, you come with me. And so he takes me to like this, the, some dean of students. I ended up getting Saturday work for it. And I just remember having this conversation with my dad about why I was getting Saturday work. And, you know, my dad, he's, he was angry. He like went across to the school and kind of told him what was what. And I ended up getting Saturday work anyway. But, you know, it felt good to have my dad kind of fight my battles for me and to go in through that. And I remember I, I showed up with a breakfast burrito and bribed the security guard on Saturday to let me out early. So I spent like 20 minutes in detention for Saturday work where you're supposed to be cleaning up trash. So I didn't learn a great lesson, but um, it was still one of those things where uh, I, I never got to see that from my dad's perspective until recently having kids and experiencing moments where they experience injustice. So maybe the question I want to propose to you is, what do you do when, let's just start with a, a simple situation. You're at the park, your kid gets pushed over. Your kid didn't get pushed over because, um, you know, Billy Blue Jeans there was really trying to get up the slide and didn't recognize, you know, he just got overly ambitious. It wasn't that kind of a scenario. Billy Blue Jeans, when your sweet darling Petunia, whatever your daughter's name is, whatever your son's name is, fill in the blank here, is standing there and um, just drinking their water bottle, but some other kid who, you know, it's not getting enough hugs, whatever it is, just comes over and just checks your kid into the ground. No remorse, no sorry, no anything else like that. And they kind of look around. They might even make eye contact with you. And there's a part of you that just feels like you're ready to go to prison for your kid. And um, you just want to drop kick them or, you know, at, you know just if they're going to go down the slide, you want to put some malicious thing at the bottom of it that they're going to sit on when they get at the bottom. I, 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 I'm a Christian, but there are moments where I feel like um, I'm not above um, being really mean, but you don't because you recognize that prison's a bad place. You get that there's a better way of doing things, but you still have a decision to make. And so I think some of us, we naturally want to hunt for the parent. Like, where is your parent? Because we have to have this conversation. And others of us, we might be the, you know, direct to the other kid kind of parent where you chase that kid down and go, excuse me, what was your name? Billy, Billy, you're the worst. And explain to them how their actions make someone else feel. And it can be uncomfortable because you're kind of parenting someone else's kid, but those of you who fall in this cat category where uh, you're more of the the advocate, um, like the peer advocate category, so we'll call that like the peer advocate, you advocate to the other peer. You advocate to the person who hurt them, and you basically are thinking to yourself right now, well, someone's got to parent them, and it might as well be me because clearly, you know, Bernadette over there on her cell phone isn't paying attention to what her son's doing. So someone's got to do something. And others of us might sit there and go, okay, I got to go talk to Bernadette. And you go and slap her phone out of her hand and you go, excuse me, what was your name? She says, Bernadette. You chuckle to yourself softly because um, it's just your first little jab that you're going to get in and before you go on your long lecture and high soapbox about how if you're going to bring your kid to a park, you have a social responsibility to watch them. And so um, this is more of like adult advocate where the, the injustice that your kid experienced is best solved by going directly to the person who can solve things moving forward. And you don't just want behavior change. You want 
policy change. You know what I'm talking about? You want this to come from the top. You want the very the, the powers that be to make an adjustment in their thinking. So it's not enough for Billy Blue Jeans to make a change. You need Bernadette to change the way that she parents. And so you're going for systemic change. You want change at the highest level. And I, it's it's funny, you know, sitting at church and watching this play skate play out and watching these different interactions happen and then mom step in and dad step in and have these different conversations or just bubble wrap their kids. Or, you know, that would be another thing is maybe someone goes in and explains to your child who was hurt, your beautiful little petunia, um, that... Uh, Billy Blue Jeans wasn't paying attention or you try to, you're almost telling a story. You're like kind of the narrator personality where you've got to tell your kid a story to make their world different. You know, well, well Petunia, you got knocked over, but um, see that kid over there, he wasn't looking where he was going and he, and, and so there's a sense in which you're trying to kind of spray cologne on the dead corpse that is Babylon of just recognizing that this world's kind of messed up, but you want Petunia to maintain her innocence as long as possible. And I think there's a good argument to be made in this category to say, you know what, one day Petunia's got to realize that there's real just bags out there. But today's not the day that Petunia needs to realize that people are out there that, <laughs> like the Joker, they just want to watch the world burn. So you got to make a decision in this moment. And I think something that I've been doing lately, and I guess at the end of the day, what do I know about anything? But... What I found is I asked myself this question because I was watching this play out and my son uh, Leo got knocked off the slide and then got back up and kids were just kind of cutting in front of him doing their thing. And and I, I feel like I feel all those different emotions coming out. Like, where are your parents? You kid need to get a little talking to or just to tell Leo like, okay, well, that, that kid only had one chance left and, and trying to recreate the world, like re-narrate the world so that it's not such an affront to his sensibilities that people are just straight up cutting in front of him. And um, th this has been one of the most pervading questions since I started having kids nine years, almost a decade ago at this point, which is, um, why didn't Jesus have kids? You know, like, why didn't Jesus get married? I, I recognize, like it says in his baptism in John chapter uh, two, that he uh, John chapter 1, that he, he he does a lot of things that he does to fulfill all righteousness. And so there seems to be, in some sense of the word, um, what would we do with Jesus's wife, right? Would we not venerate her immediately? Would she not be like, <laughs> and what kind of a life would she le lead where she's married to Jesus, he's so loving and caring and everything, but she never gets to look over and be like, well, my husband, he's been a real pill today. It's like, well, your husband's the Messiah. So uh, what are you going to do about that? And um, what would we do with his kids? You know, we would probably start, well, honestly, we'd probably start a papacy and be like, well, these kids rule the world and their descendants and their genes and their offspring. And so if Jesus had offspring, would we not worship them? Would we not have a problem with like, what do we do with them? They're like demigods and whatever. So I think there's really good reason. Jesus didn't have kids, if you start to think about it. And like, you know, we put Peter's handkerchief in a museum because it's so neat. What would we do with Jesus's offspring? Who knows? Um, but... I am interested in the idea of if Jesus sat alongside the playscape at College Avenue Church here in San Diego and watched kids crawling over this, like, what would he say? What would he do? What would he encourage? And if I was standing next to him, you know, like parents do watching other people parent and just sarcastically comment, like those two Muppets in the, you know, the the Muppet movies, the guys in the, um, like that little press box, like, hey, that guy's an idiot. <laughs> Whatever. I, I feel like 
if Jesus were willing to indulge me and stand next to me while we watched other parents parent. I just wonder what his encouragement would be. And I think probably after reading the scriptures, um, I might have come to a conclusion that I think I can make the best case for. And I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if it's right or not. Um, but I think I can find enough validation and enough biblical backing that I think I think Jesus' approach would be um, one that I've been trying to do a little bit more lately. And um, I might find out that it was really <laughs> traumatizing to my kids, which isn't fun. Like, I, it's not a funny thing to think about. But I, I would want them to... I, I, I know that I don't want to raise kids. I want to raise well-adjusted adults. And they are kids, but I'm really, I always have the end game in mind that I, I want my kids, I've always said this, like I want my kids to act, um, to have fun like kids. I want them to have permission to act like kids, but I, I want them to act like, I want them to behave like adults in a kid's mindset, um, which means they're not allowed to disrespect people they're not allowed to disobey what I'm telling them. They're not allowed to be dishonest with what they're saying. And so I recognize that kids want to run and play and be wild and all those things. But I do also have boundaries on the fact that I, I want to raise well-adjusted adults. And it can't be okay that my kid pushes other kids down the slide. It's, that's not, while it might be behavior that is common to kids, it is not permissible for any kid to be pushing other kids down anything. That's, it, that won't fly is essentially where I want to find myself. That that That's not okay, even though I understand it. A reason and an excuse are two different things. The reason my kid is lashing out irrationally is because they are a kid. It's not an excuse for the bad. It still needs to be disciplined, even if I get where it came from. Um, understanding why someone disobeys and sins is not excuse for that sin. It just helps me better paint a picture when I'm trying to correct it and and maybe to lean into recognizing and seeing myself in their disobedience sometimes more than I'd like to admit. But something that I've been doing lately that's actually been really fruitful is what do I do in those moments? And I think the answer has become how do I create a gospel opportunity in this moment so that I can look at my kid and help them recognize that I don't really need my kid to be good at adjusting to fairness because you don't really need to learn how to navigate fairness. Have you noticed that? Um, Jesus talks so much in Scripture about what to do when you're bankrupt and little to do with what happens when you come into a large sum of money. It almost seems like we're more intuitive when it comes to having success and it's more counterintuitive on how to behave when we're in failure or injustice. Like I, I know what to do. Like think about going to, I think about going to a, like a concert. I grew up like a, probably a closeted, like emo, um, Christian where like, I didn't have a lot of reasons to be mad at my dad, but I found enough of them so that I could listen to, you know, like something corporate and taking back Sunday and all these like sad emo bands, uh, yellow card and starting line and these guys. So if you have any clue what I'm talking about, we are peers at heart, you know, some 41, like just that you were angry at good Charlotte and story of the year. You were angry at your parents. You didn't really have a good reason for it. Right. I, I grew up in like upper class white suburbia, but you know, you doesn't mean you can't complain about something. And anyway, so I, I, in listening to <laughs> all that music and all those things, you, 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 you want injustice in your life and you want those things. But, um, because you want to be relatable, but at the end of the day, growing up, there wasn't a lot of that. And so you're, 
I didn't really need help with navigating sections of my life that have been simple or easy. Uh, And what I found the most difficult is arenas where uh, I've experienced suffering. You know, I I, I lost my wife to suicide two years ago and uh, being like a single widow and figuring how to raise kids in that environment and everything. And and even now as even like flipping through channels or flipping through like uh, Netflix or, you know, Disney plus or whatever it is. And I know everyone's got their own little, thoughts on those things. I'm not here to be divisive. It's really not my heart on anything, but instead to say like, how do I help my kids navigate Babylon living in San Diego, California, which is like, we're like Babylon. Like if you live in Kansas and you're listening to this, I feel like I'm coming to you from the future. Like, and the future's not bright friend. It just, <laughs> it's, it's coming for you. Like the, the trends move from the West of the coast to the East coast and from the East coast back across to the West Coast. But um, so often I find myself having to ask the question, what does it mean to navigate Babylon with my kids? And so I, I've, I've found this really contrarian and very difficult way of, uh, of figuring out what to do when my kids experience injustice. And that is to not put my hand on the doorknob when my kid tells me that a teacher was unfair to him and go, that's it, Mrs. Greenlee is going to get a tucking to from old Chris. Or to say, you know, if my kid's in a sporting event and the ref not just makes a bad call, but makes like an egregious call, you know, where um, your kid is clearly two feet behind the line and they shoot a three-pointer. They say that they touch the line. You've got video evidence and everything inside of you wants to run on the court to open up your iPhone to show them the video of it and to do all that stuff. And, and I, I think one of the questions I've been wrestling with a lot lately is what, what, why? would I do that? And a lot of things are really simple. Like it's it's the first thing that comes out of my mind and is to say like, well, because they were wrong and they need to be told that they were wrong. And what if they keep calling these things wrongly? And then a whole generation of kids comes through this sports program and their feet are called that they're on the line where they're not really. But the more you talk about it, the more kind of silly you sound of going who, what if that's the case? (laughs) What if this whole league of people, constantly is behind the line and they get called on the line. Um, I don't think it'll make them bad parents. I don't think it'll make them bad dads or friends or um, relatives. They won't make them bad kids or parents. It's it's really irrelevant to the real conversation of what makes people happy. It's not whether or not they're good at basketball or whether they can shoot threes. We all know people who are good at basketball who are miserable. And we all know people who couldn't dribble ball to save their life who are living life on cloud nine constantly and it's because of their relationships and, and that really what it comes down to like your the happiness or sadness of your life depends on how healthy are your relationships how healthy is your marriage how healthy are your kids how healthy are, like uh, that's that's shown time and time again through articles and surveys and statistics across the board and so really if I if I look at a hill slide uh, I'm saying hill slide it's a slide on a hill so you climb up it you roll down whatever if I, if I instead look at the hill slide as how do I make my kids better adjusted for life and relationships rather than how do I have my kid be first? How do I have my kid have a fun day here? When sometimes I've, I've almost found myself hoping that someone commits some injustice to them. But don't take it too far, right? Like I, I'm going to protect my kid from someone um, hitting them with a bat. I'm going to protect my kid from, you know, someone... Uh, making some inappropriate pass at them or an adult or someone else inflicting some sort of 
um, deep pain on them. So I, I don't mean, don't be goofy with it, right? There's boundaries on everything. But, um, you know, when three or four kids in a row go down the slide in front of Leo, my knee-jerk reaction is to go up there and be like, excuse me, I'm the pastor at this church and we're going to take turns. And it, I have noticed that it is my son's turn. There's something inside me that wants to do that. But then when you ask the question, why do I want that? It's, it's because I want to remove any sense of hurt from my kid immediately at all times. When in reality, if I told you, would you rather, what would you do if I told you that there was a button that you could push and that button was predictive of pain that was coming towards your kid 50 seconds from now, and at any point in your life, you had this button on your chest and it lit up. And if, when it lit up, it meant that your kid is about to experience pain in 50 seconds. It wasn't going to kill them. It wasn't going to be the end of their life. It wasn't going to be, you know, life or limb. But a, a button lit up on your chest, no matter where you were in the world, whether you were near your kid or not. And it said, you have 50 seconds to push this button or your kid's going to experience pain. Um, how many of us would think that to create a well-adjusted adult with healthy relationships, that we would push that button whenever it lit up. I think it's. It, I think you could defend yourself pretty easily in going, how could you blame me for not wanting my kid to experience pain? And yet if I told you two kids, one that whose parents push that button all the time and the other one whose parents never push that button, and I said, I want you to predict which one is a better leader. I want you to predict which one is better adjusted for the pain of this life, which one is better. I think we would all agree that though you have access to that button, it would be in your best interest only to use that in the most sparing of cases where you can. Yeah, obviously we would want to reject any sort of deep traumatizing um, infliction between an adult or something else like that that might take place. But for the most part, I think we'd be pretty shocked to find out that if we're making well-adjusted adults, we'd let that button just sit and be red and gather dust. And rarely would we even... No, you know, your kid's in the middle of a school day and you're at work and then the button lights up. And I think there'd be an internal moment where we would go, oh man, do I push it? Do I not push it? And I think you have to make a commitment one way or the other. Either you are a guy who pushes it all the time or you push it never. But to almost arbitrarily um, every once in a while tap it, there'd be really no rhyme or reason to it. So you either say, I'm going to teach my kid to navigate and be with them to try to have them have healthy outlets for their pain and their and help them to to have conversations or else I'm going to be someone who says you're going to not experience it I'm, I'm I'm watching the crown right now which is obviously the it's the royal family the the monarchs of England and my wife's really big on british culture in general like if a show sounds boring my wife loves it and if a show sounds exciting my wife's afraid of it and so we've had to try to navigate that so we find but so you know, what we do is we sit down and I go like, I want to watch, you know, I want to watch the terminal list. And she's like, I want to watch the crown. So we have a compromise and we're watching the crown and never the terminal list. That's the compromise we found in our household. But, um, but I, I, I love like the, that's really great acting and everything and you know, whatever. It, it's great. It's fine. And I find it pretty interesting. But what I find is you you kind of get this litany of really poorly adjusted adults because from a young age, they kind of had everything at their fingertips. They didn't get um, – injustice wasn't permissible. And even if they got bullied, someone came in and fixed it. But they 
um, their, their scrapes and their, their scabs that they have from growing up sometimes were mitigated because people came in and stepped in and made sure they didn't experience any sort of pain or trauma or anything. And so I'm interested in this idea of um, taking a really stand back approach with this. And I think it's something that we discuss if you, if you're co-parenting with a, with a spouse or, you know, situation like mine that I have had for the past couple of years where you have other people entering the picture to help or an uncle or aunt watches them consistently. I do think you need to be consistent with this parenting style, but I'd be interested in what would happen if we all kind of made a commitment to, um, when I was working with high school students, we, we stopped calling them helicopter parents and started calling them lawnmower parents, where not only did they hover around, they went before their kids and after their kids and made sure that there were no obstacles in their way. And um, what you found is the parents that you had the most conversations with that were making sure that everything was just and that they, you know, if they applied for the missions trip, that the, the correct process was being done and their son was being considered for X, Y, and Z, you almost always found a kid behind that process that had a little bit more difficult time with not getting um, the internship or not doing that. And the ones that you spoke with more rarely that you knew were at home, uh, just kind of fostering the emotions of their kid in not getting it or in preparing for it were the ones who typically were better adjusted to hear hard information. And um, so I've just kind of taken that and said, you know, to my wife and myself, what would it look like to commit to letting our kids experience um, small pain and small injustice and not looking for it, not searching it out, not hoping for it. But when a kid's getting cut in front of you, when a kid's cutting in front of my kid going, uh, and, and when Leo starts to cry to go, Leo, what happened, bud? Oh, these kids cut in front of me. Okay. Um, what do you want to do about it? Well, here are the options that I have. Okay. Well, what does God tell us to do? What does your conscience tell you to do? What would dad tell you to do? What do you think is right in this situation? Okay, if we hit him, what do you think would take the place in, in that moment? And then to go like, all right, man, I, I'd love to see how you want to handle this because I don't think it's going to be the last time that someone cuts in front of you in line because whether it's a future relationship where one of your friends dates someone that you were interested in or whether it's a job that you feel like you were in line for, it might not look like a hill slide when you get older, but it will be unjust. And so if I can stop looking at it as well, it's just a hill slide, and instead, I have to teach my kid what injustice response looks like. I have to teach my kid what pain response looks like. I have to teach my kid what happens when someone else doesn't parent, because that's going to be part of it. Like, I have to teach my kid what happens when a referee is making bad calls, but not just doing it accidentally, doing it on purpose, because we will all have referees in our life, not just in sports, but in life where we feel like something did not go our way, a call didn't go our way. We might even have evidence that someone was being rude or impulsive or whatever, or capricious in their rulings. But if we don't really have a proper system by which to lovingly and respectfully correct it, most of life is learning to deal with punks. Most of what separates people well-adjusted from people poorly adjusted is how do you deal with injustice and punks. It. I don't need you to teach me how to deal with beautiful women who think I'm awesome from a very early age for whatever reason that came very natural to me that I liked being around them and I liked talking with them or the people at, at church growing up with that were your friends that had the same interest. No one ever had to teach me how to be friends with people who wanted to be friends with me and who showed deference and were kind and were genteel and were um, amenable to the things that I wanted. I really, really did not need help with that. What I needed to learn 
was how to deal with the EGRs, the extra grace required kids that wanted more of your attention and gave very little. I, I needed to learn how to deal with the teachers who had teachers' pets and they weren't me. And I didn't need my parents going in and talking to them about fair treatment under the system for all kids, including my kid. You know, I... I had a teacher named Mrs. Kite in fifth grade. I don't know if she's still with us, but she was mean to me. She got together one day and had all the class line up and tell why they thought that I was a bully. Because I had a lot of influence as a little as a young kid. This is fifth grade, though. I had my teacher. Um, and I, for sure, there's things that I needed to hear, but she just laid into me. I remember thinking now as an adult, like, you can't do that. Like, you can't just sit down a kid who's emotionally unstable, especially if, you know, I, I was if I was inflicting any sort of like uh, pain on someone, that means I was experiencing some sort of pain myself. Not that it excuses behavior, but as a teacher, I would want to delve into the roots. And I remember now thinking back and going, man, that was rough. Um, but it was something I needed to navigate. So maybe a challenge, maybe maybe I'm just helping talk through something that I've been working through with within the gospel and seeing how many times did Jesus have disciples who were feeded, treated unfairly or how easy would it have been as his, as his followers were getting martyred for him to stop and have every spear turn into jelly when it went to go through, you know, as Thomas is stabbed with a spear in the Cape of Africa to have the spear turn to jelly or when um, Peter's being crucified upside down for the nails not to penetrate his skin or... You know, when Paul's being beheaded in Nero's circus for God to make the the executioner um, last minute change his mind and decide he's going to cut the ropes rather than cut off Paul's head. And and yet um, Jesus seems to say, in this world you will have trouble, right? Uh, uh, do not conform to the patterns of this world, Romans chapter 12, John chapter 14. Um, just don't freak out when trouble comes because I've overcome the world. But in the meantime, you're going to need to learn how to navigate it. So how can we as parents look at these opportunities and try to take a really difficult position, which is I am going to create a buffer zone around to make sure there's no lasting damage or anything or significant abuse that goes on. But how do I sit and say, I need you to learn how to navigate injustice far more than I need you to learn how to watch me take care of all of the helicopter and the lawn mowing that I need to do to make sure that your life is um, easy. And I know as someone who's had to navigate with my kids about the loss of their mom and suicide and mental health, and um, I had one of my kids one time go into a classroom. For the first week, they were at this church, and a kid stood up in my son Brady's second grade classroom and said, you're Brady? I heard your mom went crazy and killed herself. And my knee-jerk reaction is, I got to find this parent. I got to find this teacher. I got to talk about. But instead, I sat down with Brady and I said, hey, why do you think a kid said this? What do you think might have happened? Do you Have you ever heard something and you, you, you heard it and you, you repeated it when you shouldn't have? And what do we know to be true about mom? What do we know to be true about these things? And so I'm teaching him skills like breaking down the um, the affront, breaking down the problem, breaking down the injustice and asking helpful questions rather than just going, all right, Brady, watch, watch me come take down eight people. Cause sometimes in life, that's not the response, but there will always be pain. There will always be people saying dumb stuff. There will always be injustice. If I can teach my kid to adjust his sails to the pain around him, rather than to always jump ship or call for the commander of the fleet to come in and bring the battleship. 
I think I'm going to have a much better adjusted kid. And, and I wonder, and I just, I fail to think that Jesus wouldn't take a similar approach and going, yep, this is the way that the world is. Now, what does it look like as a follower of Jesus to respond to these things? Hopefully this is helpful for you. Here at Dead Tired, we're, we're always looking for new ways to challenge ourselves and just to invite you into the journey. Thanks for, for listening to this, and we'll catch you guys next time. Man, so thankful for Chris uh, and his wisdom and how he makes things just so practical. Uh, Chris is going to be one of the speakers at the Dad Tired Retreat. So again, if you haven't picked up your registration for that, make sure to do that at dadtired.com. Caleb, who was hosting the podcast last week, he will be another teacher there and then myself. And so um, we're just we're going to do our best to point you to Jesus and have you have an opportunity to meet other guys. It really is the highlight of what we do all year. So if you haven't picked up your registration, go to dadtired.com and you can register for that. All right. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.